TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. Backable people take the time to convince themselves first, and then they let that conviction shine through with whatever speaking style it is that feels most natural to them. From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, entrepreneur Sunil Gupta explains why it's so important to bring your own experience and insights into a new venture. One of the key things about having an earned secret is that you earned it. Like, you put yourself out of the field. You did it yourself. Do you have a great idea that you think will make a lot of money? Do you need to raise some serious capital to get your idea off the ground? Well, you've come to the right place at the right time, because my guest today is Sunil Gupta. He's the co-founder of the healthcare company Rise, and he helped turn Groupon from a pipsqueak to a multi-billion dollar company. More to our purposes here, he's the author of the new book, Backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. He's here to talk about that surprising truth and about the surprising twists and turns in his own entrepreneurial story. Sunil Gupta, welcome to Design Matters. Debbie, it's so good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start by asking you a little bit about your mother. While this is definitely an interview about you, I'd like to start by talking about her. Sure. She's really remarkable. Are you okay with that? Of course. Yeah. I love talking about mom. Okay. So in 1947, when your mother was five years old, her family was forced to move from their small village in India when the country had gained independence from Great Britain, but was divided into two countries, Pakistan and India. Your mom's parents were well-to-do landowners who lost everything overnight when the rioting and looting broke out. They left on cargo ships in the middle of the night from Mumbai, where they were considered refugees. The family had no money, 
but your mom hatched a plan to get the family back on its feet. She studied hard in school. She made good grades. And then at 13 years old, the prime minister of India visited her city. She went to see him speak. And he told the group that India needed engineers. And at that moment, your mother decided to become an engineer, something that was unheard of for women at the time. She went to college to study mechanical engineering at a college that didn't have a women's restroom. So like in the movie, Hidden Figures, she had to bike one and a half miles just to go to the bathroom. At 19, she read a book about Henry Ford and became obsessed with assembly lines and Ford's dream of bringing the car to the average person. She started dreaming of coming to the United States and working at Ford. She then left India in 1965 at 22 years old. She travels first to Germany, then to Stillwater, Oklahoma, where she studied engineering before getting a job at Ford in 1967. That same year, your mom's car broke down outside Ann Arbor, so she found a telephone booth and searched the phone book for the most common Indian name she could think of. The guy who answered was Subhash Gupta. They were married within a year and had two sons, your brother Sanjay and you. So my first question for you, Sunil, is this. Is it true that the word impossible was not allowed in your house in your upbringing? Wow. Uh, well, just even hearing you, it's it's funny. You know, I grew up with this story, and just hearing you just say it, Debbie, it gets me it gets me emotional. Yeah, the word impossible was not allowed in our house. Um, we were always sort of asked to figure it out. You know, whatever it is that we that we wanted to do, figure figure it out. It's it's funny. I always sort of remember these these stories about mom, and I have been more as of late. You know, as she's you know getting a little bit older, and we, we're, we're I'm trying my best to spend as much time as I possibly can with her. And there's these moments that that are just I, I will all of a sudden think of, and one of them was. I remember in third grade, I was um, I was uh, taking social. I had a social studies teacher who I loved. Her name was Mrs. Knauer, and I, I will never forget when Mrs. Knauer played some of the footage of John F. Kennedy's inaugural speech. And then after she showed us the speech, you know, we, we learned about John F. Kennedy. But one of the things she said was, you know, he didn't necessarily write that speech himself. He had a team working with him. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, that would be really cool to do someday. Like, what if I got a chance to write for somebody like a John F. Kennedy? And uh, I remember racing home and telling my mom, hey, mom, like when I grow up, that's what I want to do. I want to write speeches. And I remember my mom looking at me and saying, like, why are you going to wait until you grow up? Well, just go do that now. And so I did. I started to ride my bike to the offices of local politicians, and I would ask them if I could write speeches for them. And, of course, most of the time they would say, look, we'd rather have you stuff envelopes or go knock on doors. But every once in a while somebody would be like, yeah, sure. Um, you know, why don't you put some thoughts down on paper? And, uh, and it just sort of built from there. There was, a, there was a congressman passing through my hometown in Novi, Michigan. His name was Bart Stupak. And I knew he was going to be at a certain hotel giving a speech. And I knew he was going to be talking about health care. I was, I think, 16 years old at the time. 
And I, I drove my car to the hotel with this speech in hand, waited for him in the lobby. And when he walked uh, into the lobby, I, I cornered him and said, hey, I've got some remarks prepared for you tonight. Completely naive <laughs> about the idea that, like, of course, I mean, he's, he's giving the speech in the next 15 minutes. Like, he's got his remarks. Like, he, doesn't need, he doesn't need my stuff. And I, I'll never forget the look of the person who was traveling with him as well, just looking at me being like, who is this kid? But Stu Pack, he, he just stares at me blankly, and he says, what's your phone number? And I give it to him. It's a home, my home number, not a cell or anything like that. And a year and a half later, I get a call from the White House. And it's somebody who's, who's part of the internship program over there. It says, you know, Congressman Stu Pack uh, recommended you a while ago. You've been in our files for a long time. And how would you like to come, come do some writing with us this summer? And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's weird, Debbie, getting back to your question about the word impossible. No, just looking at her story, it was difficult to ever sort of go to her and be like, I can't do something. And even more than that, there was always sort of, she always pushed back with, well, okay, well, why not at this moment? Because we have no idea, you know, what, what, how life is going to unfold, what's going to come ahead. I think that's the refugee mindset in a lot of ways, which is this sense of impermanence but also possibility. And so there's a sense of urgency that I think comes with everything, right? Don't take anything for granted. If you want it, then find a way to make it happen sooner rather than later. I've only had two instances over the 16 years I've been doing this podcast where in researching my guest, I thought, wow, I really want to interview this guest's mother. (laughs) Actually, no, three times. Three times it's happened. It's happened now with Julia Tertian, and I did indeed interview her mother, Rochelle Udell, who is a major, major force at Condé Nast for a very long time and and really changed the field of art direction. Um, Lucy Wainwright, whose mother is one of the Roaches sisters, so absolutely wanted to to do that and hope to still someday. And now you. Wow. <laughs> so wow. I have an open invitation for your mom to come on Design my Matters at a, any time. My mom would love that. And she she's so great at telling stories. Like So she will definitely come on this show. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, one of the things that you've said was the most important things that she taught you was the relationship between action and courage. And and I thought that was really fascinating. And I was wondering if you can share that today. Yeah, because I always felt like in order for her to do what she had to do, how do you muster up the courage to do that? Right? How do you like where do you get the resolve to say that you know, I, I am living in a refugee camp, right? We are living on rations. And yet, one day, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move to the United States, and I'm going to become an engineer with Ford Motor Company, right? Which at that time was the company of its day. Where do you get that? And where do you get the courage to sort of proceed with a plan like that? And I think that the thing that I misunderstood was that courage leads to action, Right? You build up enough courage, and once you cross a certain threshold, you can, you can act. But if I unpack my mom's story, it really is the other way around. She acted, and because she acted, she built some courage along the way. And be- with that little bit of courage, it led to more action, which led to more courage. And it became this you know, cycle, this engine that sort of propelled her forward. And, you know... What I do today is I I spend time studying extraordinary people 
And what I found is very much the same pattern, which is that it didn't really start with, let me go away for a while, build a bunch of courage, and then act. It was more kind of like, let me just act and then figure it out along the way, um, which I know we hear so often, but you know, it, it, when, you, when you see your own parent, when you see their own story sort of unfold that way, I think it hits you in a different way. So now you've written about how you grew up in an almost boringly safe suburb, yeah. never experiencing anything close to the conditions your mom did, but somehow you and your brother both uh, inherited her refugee mentality, something you've described as a strange mix of impermanence and optimism. And I'm wondering if you can also share a little bit more about what that means. Yeah. Um, you know, there can be a sense of anxiety that comes, I think, with the refugee mentality, because I think in some ways it's sort of this feeling that you're going to lose everything, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I think the, the positive, which I think was a huge, huge net benefit, was the sense of, well, then anything is available. It's almost like this sense of if you have nothing, then everything is on the table, and and I think in some ways that is, you mentioned in the beginning, the speech that my mom heard when, when Jarral and Nehru, India's first prime minister, was basically trying to rebuild the country, right? Trying to figure out now that the, the country had gotten its independence from Britain. You know, what do we do now? We're very, very poor. You know, the economy's in the shambles. Mahatma Gandhi had just been assassinated and Nehru always, I think, envisioned that Gandhi would be by, by his side, and they would, be, they would sort of be figuring this out together. And now he didn't have his partner. But I, but I think that the thing that she talks to me about when she heard that speech was a sense of, you know, let's move in whatever direction we think, we, we think makes sense. Noth nothing is anchoring us anymore. And in his case, it was, hey, like, why don't we really invest in, you know, math and science and design and creating things and building things? Let's go do that, right? Why not? Um, and I think that that's really that sense of impermanence and optimism that, you know, you, you just never, you never lose, you know, she brings it into her own career. And yeah, my brother and I are, we were born and raised in suburban Michigan. The conditions were completely different than anything she had ever experienced before. And yet at the same time, when you're raised by someone who's been through that, it, you can't help but sort of, I think, pick up a little bit of that grit. Despite the optimism, you've talked about the isolation of growing up as one of very few brown-skinned kids in your neighborhood, and your dad called your family four raisins inside a tub of vanilla swirl ice cream. <laughs> what was that like for you? You know, one of the decisions that my parents made that always sort of puzzled me was that you know, there were areas of Michigan where there were lots of Indian folks. And yet my parents decided to move to a place where there was literally none. It was, it was just us when we moved there. And I was always sort of puzzled by that. Like, why? Why, why do you, especially I think as my brother and I got picked on a lot, got bullied a lot for that reason, for having sort of brown skin, we would ask her, like, what, what was behind that decision? And, and, and her, her response was very much just, you have to figure this out. Like, if you, if you think that the answer is to go be amongst people who just look like you and think like you, talk like you, like, that's just not the way that life works. And either you're going to learn that lesson right now, or you're going to learn it later on. And I'd much rather be here with you as you learn that lesson. 
So it wasn't easy all the time, but, you know, I feel like we kind of did it together as a family. We would talk about it. I think the hardest part, honestly, for, for, for me was when I talk to people who I think have gone through sort of, you know, being different or feeling like the outsider based on the way that they look. One of the things that I, I often pick up is that there, there tends to be an age where that doesn't matter. And then all of a sudden you get to an age where all of a sudden it seems like it does. For me, that was in 1991, because in 91, we went to war with Iraq. You know, it was, was, this was Desert Storm. And that was exhilarating for the kids in my class, especially the boys. It was an exhilarating moment because they had never seen anything like that before, right? And all of a sudden on television, we're watching this war sort of unfold, short, short war. And it happens to be that the people who were sort of going to war with look a lot like me. And I think in some ways it, people felt like it was their patriotic duty to sort of give the brown kid a hard time. And that's when it got a little bit rough. Yeah. How did you manage? I managed a lot by, I think, learning to just kind of be uh, by myself, you know? I think being being more comfortable with that, which I don't necessarily look at that as, like, a bad thing. I do look back on those experiences and feel like I wish it would have been a little bit different for that kid. But I also know that because I was able to, you know, find, I think, some sort of grounding, some centering by myself, I think that it just served me very well. I've been able to come back to that place through, you know, other things that have come up. If you look at my sort of bio, uh, you know, on LinkedIn, you're going to see the success, but you're not going to see all of the failures. And there are many of them. And it was during those moments where I think there's a lot of value of being able to come back to yourself, right? And, and learning that at an early age, was, it, was, it was a gift. I love the way you look at it. It is really quite optimistic. So I see your mother's influence there for sure. You earned a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Michigan and then took an IT job in downtown Detroit. And you've written this about the experience. The pay was decent, but each day was the same as the last, troubleshooting issues, building spreadsheets, and maintaining databases. It was simple, mind-numbing work. And then you go on to describe how you were waiting for someone to point in your direction and say, that kid's a star. Let's find a better way to make use of his talents. But it didn't happen. And in a sea of cubicles, you sat at your desk waiting to be discovered. And I have to tell you, Sunil, I've often heard about people's sort of waiting to be discovered. I remember somebody very close to me describing how she was waiting to be discovered because she had ballerina's feet and she was waiting to be discovered as a dancer. Why do so many people do this? Why do they hope and wait and maybe expect that they will be revealed to the world? Yeah, such a good question. You know, when I was in graduate school, I had this marketing professor who said something that I'll just, I, I don't know why, but it just really stuck with me. And, and what she said was on the first day of class, she said, you know, I, I pay attention to the exams, of course, but I also really pay attention to the way that you engage with the class. That, that, that's really, that really matters to me. And she said, and you know what? You might be brilliant, but if you don't say anything, then I won't have any idea. And 
that just stuck with me because I think it's true. I think in a lot of ways we're sort of waiting to be called on before we sort of speak up. And I don't know why we expect it. I don't know necessarily why I expected it. I think it is a very privileged position that I don't, I try not to take anymore, a privileged posture. But like, you know, this idea that like somebody is going to say, hey, you know what? We've been underutilizing that person. I bet you that <laughs> right. person is like a lot, like very brilliant over there. Yeah. The one thing I hear very often from, you know, the students that I work with is like, I'm not having the impact that I want to have, right? But in order to have that impact, they're sort of waiting for somebody to say, hey, let's put you in a position where you can have impact because we think you can do so much more. So, you know, I think we get stuck in that position. When you were in that position, you did what you've described as what a lot of people do when they feel directionless. You decided to go to law school. (laughs) No offense to any lawyers that really love practicing law, and I know a bunch, um, but were you at all excited about becoming a lawyer at that point, or was it one of the uh, have-to-be-a-lawyer-a-doctor-an-engineer kind of moments? It definitely was a uh, let-me-go-do-something that... I feel like might make my parents somewhat proud, but I, I kind of knew in the back of my mind that like, no, I, I don't think I want to practice law because to your point, there, there are so many people out there, especially I met in law school who are all about that. Like that's what they wanted to do. They had a passion for that, you know, in Hindu terms, they, that was their dharma, but it wasn't mine. And, and so when people started to look for work, I started to look in very unconventional places, and I started to set my eyes on, you know, could I go out into a place in, like Silicon Valley where, you know, people are making things, people are building things, and be a part of that. You also got an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management. So in looking at your timeline, I know you did like all of your education in six years. Were you doing your MBA and getting your degree in law concurrently? Yeah, yeah. So Northwestern had, at that point, recently rolled out a program where you could do an MBA and a JD in three years. So you spend your first year in law school, and then your second year is predominantly at the business school, and then your third year is, is, is at the law school again. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty condensed. But the nice thing is that you do it with a group of people. So I had, I had 15 or so people who were doing the exact same program with me. And so even though it was tougher at times, you you never felt alone. You were sworn in by Justice Roberts to practice law in front of the United States Supreme Court. And as you were finishing your degree, you received a job offer from what you've described as a chest-thumping <laughs> corporate firm based in Midtown Manhattan. The signing bonus itself was twice the salary you were earning in Detroit. But you got a sinking feeling that taking that job would send you back to the same headspace you were in before you went to law school. So you turned down the offer and began cold calling people in Silicon Valley. And you just mentioned that that became interesting to you. What about the atmosphere in Silicon Valley and the work that was happening there was intriguing you, especially after spending those three years studying law and business administration? Yeah, I think it very much was about creating you know, something from scratch. As, as you've talked about on the show a lot, you know, it, the difference between building something from zero to one versus just, op, you know, optimizing what's already there. And 
for me, you know, and there's nothing wrong with optimizing, by the way. Like there are people who do that very, very well. I guess I've always kind of been the kind of person who sort of has felt like what's not out there right now that could be out there. And it's just not the way that I was finding that, you know, certainly law firms tend to think, right? It's, 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 we're working with established companies, we're working with established clients that need to solve a very specific problem. And, uh, and in order to make their business just a little bit better or to, you know, de-risk it in, in just a little bit more. And, uh, and that, that just didn't appeal to me as much as this idea of like, what's, what can we build? What can we, what can we do? I had such admiration for people who, you know, wrote lines of code, who, who built things, who, who were able to, to do that. And I was also just getting a keen awareness, you know, the iPhone had just launched right around the time that I was starting to, you know, prepare to graduate. And, you know, I thought to myself, gosh, things are just getting created so quickly now. If I, if I compare sort of what's happening now to the way that my parents worked, my parents were both engineers and, you know, they both worked for Ford Motor Company. And I remember they would work on projects for years, like literally years before anybody would ever take a look at their work. I, I still remember driving to the auto show that took place in Detroit every year. And it was like my dad would, would tell me, hey, you know, inside that car is a part that I have been working on now for like three and a half years. And today is going to be the day that we sort of unveil that. And what really fascinated me about what was happening, I think, in tech at the time was like people were literally developing things during a lunch break right? and then just and, and posting their code and having it be used by the end of the day. And I just that was intoxicating to me. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I believe that your first Silicon Valley job was as director of product development for Mozilla, the maker of Firefox. But I believe your first job out of law school was actually as a writer for MTV, for which you worked there, I think, for about a year. So is, is that correct? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Tell me how that fits in with the sort of life goal that you that you had at the time. It's, it's always been a little bit weird, Debbie. And it's always it's always hard to sort of make sense of it myself, especially if I if I'm describing it to my family, they're like, wait, what? 
I've always kind of jumped back and forth between the worlds of of, of writing, which I've always I've, I've loved, and you know, spent time as a writer before I went to graduate school. Yeah, for the DNC, for the Democratic right? National Committee. Yeah. yeah, and then when I was when I was working at Mozilla, I wanted to, I still wanted to write, and MTV had this role where they were where they were creating something new around content focused on you know people with brown skin. Um, so I was kind of moonlighting that job while I was working at Mozilla, and I felt like I was sort of scratching both my itches. I had the technologies, sort of more analytical side of, of the world during the day, and I got to do more of the sort of, you know, creative, fresh type of stuff at, at night. And the writing yeah. began in 2004. I got a job at the Democratic National Committee as a writer. And one of the stories that really intrigued, I mean, is just is stuck with me, I think in a lot of ways is probably just the basis of what it is that I try to do each each day was that I'm sitting backstage and there's a guy that nobody recognizes who's about to give a speech. He's a state senator from Illinois. And Barack Obama gets up and gives that speech and I got to watch it from backstage. And yeah. what I saw was just this just I get the chills even just talking about it. It's, it was this there's almost this tidal wave of energy that just sort of ripped through the stadium. And I became one of, I think, millions of young people that night that became really fascinated with Obama's story. Who is this? Like, who is this guy? He was running for Senate at the time. As I started to unpack his story, which is what I love to do now, unpack people's stories, understand sort of where, like, how, what was the arc of it? You do this way better than I do. I'm learning from you. Hardly. <laughs> what I found, though, was really surprising, which was that four years prior to that speech, he had run for Congress. And he had lost. He lost. And he had lost by a huge margin, a two-to-one margin. It wasn't close. But the thing that surprised me even more than that was the way that he was received during that campaign. People described him as stilted. Professorial. Professorial. Yeah. Yeah. There was a reporter named Ted McClelland who followed him around during that campaign, shadowed him, who wrote that Barack Obama is so dry that he sucks up all of the air out of the room. It's crazy. And then four years later, he is this bastion of hope and energy and, and inspiration. And that, to me, was just the most inspiring thing, which is not necessarily that, wow, I was seeing this, this person who clearly was a rising star. What was most inspiring to me was sort of that there was this moment of, you know, call it reinvention or turnaround or, or whatever it was. And I wanted to kind of focus more on that. What happened during those four years? And... Really, that's how I spend my time today. I, I try to go to these sort of moments where we, we, we don't really pay much attention to because we kind of assume that the people that we admire have always sort of been that way. And if you rewind the clock, I try to find these almost dips in their experience where it was like, no, things actually were going very poorly. And here's what they did. Here are the adjustments that they made to get to where they are today. That is what is endlessly fascinating for me. And and you did that over and over while you were at Mozilla. You initially were hired to work on legal matters, but you found yourself drawn to the engineering and design areas of the business. And you talk about how you were finally given a chance to lead and launch a new product feature for Firefox, but you don't really talk about how you did it, how you actually got that chance. You know, you certainly were hanging around and showed that you were interested, but what was the catalyst to making that happen? Yeah. I mean, I asked for it. One of the things I think I'm, I'm pretty decent at is sort of just, if I look at somebody's workflow, how, how are people working? 
I tend to sort of kind of be the person who says, well, what about, could, could we do that? Maybe that could be a little bit different or, you know, could that improve things? Which is interesting because that's very, what I just described to you is the job of an optimizer and I don't like to optimize. But, but in this case, what I was doing is I was watching these, these brilliant engineers and designers work. And what I was finding is that they were sort of putting things into, you know, spreadsheets and sort of tracking their work in, in pretty disjointed ways because they were focusing on doing what they were doing, which was, which was, you know, writing code and creating designs. And so it started out as, hey, could I actually just organize this a little bit for you? I think whenever you're not really asking for something, you're not asking for a title, you're not asking for a role, but you're just saying, hey, do you mind if I just, could I, could I do this? And if you like it, great. And if you don't, then throw it out. Um, that's kind of what I did. You know, I went to the, the head at that time of Mozilla Labs, a guy named Chris Beard, who ended up eventually becoming the CEO and asked him, and he's like, sure, knock yourself out. I mean, I, there's, no, there's no sort of pressure for him at that point in time to give me anything. Um, but, I, you know, I think when I started to organize things, I think that what he saw um, was, you know, A, I was a pretty collaborative person. And I think the other thing he saw was just a curiosity. Like I was very curious about what they were doing. And then the reason that matters is because I could help other people get interested in it as well. And that in some ways is the job of a product manager is, you know, how do we take all this cool stuff that we're building on the inside and make it intriguing to people on the outside? And that's why, you know, I ended up getting the shot. It's so interesting to compare the instinct to wait for something to happen, to wait to be discovered versus asking for something. And I have to say, there's maybe been three instances that I can think of off the top of my head where I was just offered something. And two of those three things were from the same person. <laughs> Whereas 99.9% of, of everything I've ever been able to do was because I had to ask for it. Yeah. And it takes a lot of courage to do that. Um, although I, I don't, I wouldn't have thought of that at the time. I think that I've come to that conclusion in, in reading your book, sort of that putting that, that taking that risk to ask. Okay. Which, but I have to ask this. Was there, was there one moment in particular where you sort of realized that you didn't want to ask, but you, you, you realized you had to? Not until after, not until after. And now I give that advice a lot, you know, to my students, you have to ask, you have to ask. As you get older and find that the waiting isn't really working, yeah. <laughs> that if you really want something, you have to take action. You have to. Yeah, yeah. Tell me if this resonates too. When I talk to people who are sort of kind of, I think, sort of waiting, um, one of the things I also hear uh, is that I'm not ready. Right. Mm. I, I, I'm not ready. Yeah. I'm not ready yes. tend to be sort of the three <laughs> words. Um, you know, I'm not ready to step into that role. I'm not ready to speak my mind. I'm not ready to run with that idea. I'm not ready. You know, I, I'm often asked with, with the people that I was, you know, studying and interviewing for my book, was there one thing? Was there one common denominator amongst all these extraordinary people? And I would say that, yeah, that the common denominator is that none of them were really ready. Like, I could not find a single situation where it was like, yep, that person was completely ready to go do what they did. I mean, you know, three friends from design school were not ready to start Airbnb. A uh, right. mid-level talent manager wasn't ready to start SoulCycle. A, you know, a 15-year-old a from Stockholm, Sweden, wasn't ready to build an environmental movement. But today, Greta Thunberg is Time Magazine's youngest ever person of the year. 
And, you know, there were setbacks and there were failures along the way, of course. But, you know, I think the mantra that, you know, either consciously or unconsciously, I think most of the people that I study seem to adopt is that the opposite of success is not failure. It's boredom. Mm. You know, I also say that the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Oh. And I think it's sort of the same I thing. You know, it the opposite of success isn't failure, it's boredom and, and mediocrity, I think. When you're when you're just too afraid to to take that risk. But one thing about sort of that notion of being ready that I think is so important to also acknowledge is that that sense of readiness usually comes when you feel like you're not going to have fear about it anymore. Mm. And that's never going to happen. Never. Because anything uncertain really does kick up that reptilian part of the brain. And you can't ever, ever get rid of that. Uncertainty is just the place where that fear lives. And you just can't ever get rid of that in the same way you couldn't ever expect that if you were confronted by something terrorizing, you would feel um, the adrenaline rush. That just happens instinctually. Yeah, yeah. In, in some ways, it reminds me a lot of what you've talked about in the past, which is this this idea of confidence versus courage. Right? Mm. Like, I mean, you can wait to build confidence. And what I've kind of realized, at least for myself, is that that doesn't really happen, especially when it comes to new things. I think that I think you said the idea of confidence comes from repeating something over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The successful repetition of any endeavor. That's how you build confidence, but you can't necessarily have confidence in that case for anything that's brand new to you. And so waiting to have confidence to go tackle something that's different, that moment may may never come, which comes back to us sort of like, you can wait to be discovered, and that moment will never come. Yeah. If not now, when? If not now, when? If not now, when? So you said that after years of working inside other startups, whether it be um, Groupon or Mozilla, you realized that what you really wanted, you had been afraid to do. So what was that? I wanted to start my own company. I wanted to put myself out there. And I was afraid to do that. You know, and I think that, you know, especially when you're when you're part of another organization that's doing pretty well, you can get a lot of credit that sometimes maybe you don't deserve. You know, like when Groupon was doing well, at that time I was the first head of product development that was hired there. And there were all these articles being written, you know, and I was getting I was getting thrown in as like, hey, this this guy must be a star. And I remember thinking to myself, like, not really. I think I'm pretty capable. I'm, I'm learning as I go, but I'm I'm certainly getting a lot more credit than I deserve because I feel like I'm part of this rocket ship right now. If I put myself out there with my own thing, then it's just me. It's just me. I I don't have anything to ride off of. And that that really scared me. At that point, you had what you believed was a winning idea for your own business. Can you share what it was? Yeah. So the, the idea was, you know, at that time, Airbnb was starting to hit its stride. Uber was starting to hit its stride. And I thought to myself, like, why, why isn't more of this happening in, in the field of healthcare? What can we do with the many, many, I think, talented healthcare professionals that are out there right now that might be sort of wanting to do more, having more impact? That was kind of the problem space I was thinking about. But more than that, it was really just going back to a story that, you know, I, I continue to think about, about my father, who, when he was in his 40s, had a triple bypass surgery. 
um, it was emergency. By the time I got to school that day, you know, my aunt picked me up, took me to the hospital. And I remember seeing him, and he looked like he'd aged 20 years overnight. And I remember when we were on our way back to our house, you know, a, a few days later, they, they'd given us a, a, you know, some paperwork, you know, and part of the paperwork was how to eat at home. And enlisted on that sheet were sort of the do's and don'ts, and, and it had things like eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. And I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, like, we don't eat broccoli, we don't eat Brussels sprouts, and I, I just, we eat Indian food. And I remember thinking to myself, this isn't going to really work for my dad. And it didn't. He had a very yeah. difficult time, as many of us do, trying to adopt a different lifestyle, trying to change our own behavior. And it was lucky for us, finally, the hospital was like, look, we, we, have, to, we have to find a program that's going to work for you. We ended up, insurance ended up kicking in, and we ended up getting the help of a, of a nutritionist who really helped customize our lifestyle into something that was going to work. We could still be Indian. We could eat Indian food, but we could do it in a healthy way. And I believe that that nutritionist is a big part of the reason that, that my dad is alive today. Yeah. And so the idea for, for my startup, Rise, was... We could match you one-on-one -on -one with a personal nutritionist over your mobile phone, give you the same quality of care, but we could do it at a fraction of the cost because we could just be, we could be a lot more efficient uh, using mobile. And so that was the idea. So as much as it was and is a great idea, you were struggling to get other people excited about it. And you started to feel at the time the same frustration that you had back when you were sitting in that cubicle in Detroit. And in the meantime, you were contacted by the organizer of an event called the Failure Conference, or FailCon, where you'd been repeatedly nominated to speak. And you agreed to be the keynote, but moments before your speech, you began to question your life choices. Not a great time to have that sort of <laughs> epiphany. How did that impact your talk? Because that really, if you look at the arc of your life, was one of those defining moments. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a humbling experience when someone calls you and says, hey, we're doing this conference on failure, and we would love for you to be the keynote speaker. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, you know, I thought to myself, I've been trying to craft, as some of us do, this image of success. And things don't seem to really be falling into place for me right now, you know, and I'm about to go talk about that pretty openly. And I think that, you know, today it's a little bit different because failure, I think, is talked about a little bit more now than it was before. But this is 2012 when I gave that speech-ish. You know, I felt like, all right, well, now I'm going to end up being sort of the failure guy, which totally ended up being the case. There was a reporter in the audience for that speech. She ended up writing a huge story on failure in the New York Times, prominently featuring you. Um, it went viral. And you ultimately had to change your identity from that fake it till you make it attitude of success to being honest about what you did and didn't know. How did that article change your life? Yeah, you know, there was a time where you could literally Google failure and my face would have been one of your top search results. And a friend of mine that I, I spoke to around the time, you know, kind of reminded me of a lesson that we had learned when we were kids. We used to go to temple together, and the, the priest that we would see would often talk about, he talk about Hinduism, but he talked about Buddhism as well. And I remember there was, a, there was a parable that he shared with us from the Buddha, and, and it was that when you feel pain of any kind, two arrows are shot. 
And the first arrow is the arrow that punctures your skin. And there's nothing you can really do about that arrow. You're going to feel the pain. But the second arrow is the arrow where you really ascribe meaning to that pain. It's where you, it's where you decide that you want to do something with it. You know, and, and, that, and that arrow is very much up to us. That's our, that's our choice. And he motivated me in some ways of like, what could I actually do with this? And one of the things I decided to do was I started to email people I admired, but had never had a chance to talk to. And I would email them and I would say, I would actually include the link to the article. And I would say, as you can see, I have no idea what I'm doing right now. (laughs) But would you be willing to, you know, grab coffee with me or or jump on the phone with me? And, And the response rate to that email was extraordinarily high. But I think more important than that was that because it wasn't an email that was sort of, I think, uh, espoused in success, it wasn't somebody who was, you know, trying to impress, it just opened the gateway to just like really honest conversations. I was surprised that people were, I think, as willing and actually wanted to share their own failure story. Because people don't really ask that. And I, and I think that we, again, we, we, we craft these images that almost hide that stuff. But there's some really, really interesting stories there. And I was starting to hear those stories. That ultimately ended up becoming the foundation for, I think, wh- how I spent the next several years. Yeah, I mean, they weren't mercy meetings. People weren't meeting you because they felt sorry for you. They were really interested. And that provided an epiphany that changed the way you see everything. People who change the world aren't just brilliant, they're backable. And and ultimately gave you the the runway to to write this remarkable book. Talk about what being backable actually means. Yeah, yeah. I was finding that there are certain people who have this almost mysterious it quality. This just it seemed, seemed to be this ability to, to walk into a room and really just inspire people to take action. And the trick of it is, the, I think the most important thing is, it's when it's not necessarily obvious. And when you can walk in with the obvious sort of like, this is absolutely what we need to do. I have all of the data. I have all of the proof. That's not necessarily a backable moment. But a backable moment is when we don't know. We actually have to take a bit of a leap of faith here on you we have to take a leap of faith on your idea. We still feel inspired to do that. And, you know, it really kind of cuts to this idea that I just didn't understand at the time, which is that creativity and persuasion are two different things. You can have a brilliant idea and you can still be dismissed. And yet, and at the same time, by the way, it works the other way. You can have ideas that aren't necessarily all that great, that don't necessarily do a lot of good. We've, we've, we've seen plenty of documentaries on some of these lately, and yet that person is, is incredibly backable. They have, this, they have that it quality. What I thought to myself as I was starting to kind of watch more, more, you know, what was happening with Theranos, what was happening with the Fire Festival, you know, later on what was happening with WeWork, I thought to myself, like, we, we need more high-integrity people in the world who know how to sell a good idea. And maybe this book can provide a little bit of a framework. And one person that I sort of continue to keep in mind, even though it's an older story, is a guy named Bob Ebeling. Ebeling was an engineer on the Space Shuttle Challenger. And the day before the Challenger went up, he actually was looking at some of the data and he found that, look, this is actually a little bit too dangerous. 
overnight, conditions are going to change, the temperature is going to drop, and it's going to put things at risk. And so he does what I think you know most of us would do. He calls a meeting, he gets his colleagues into a room, and he presents sort of his findings. And then he presents a recommendation, which was, let's just delay this thing. And he was dismissed. And the challenger goes up the next morning, disintegrates within 90 seconds, killing everybody on board. Ebeling ended up spending the rest of his life blaming himself for that. He gave an interview with NPR where he said, God should not have chosen me for that role because I had the information, but I didn't have the persuasive ability to get everybody bought in to what I had to say. God should have chosen someone else. And so I think that, you know, we may not have the drama of a Bob Evelyn, but I think we can all, I think, relate to that, where it's like we feel inside that we have something to offer, but the people that we're sharing it with are not nearly as excited about it as we are. There's something missing there, and that's where this book really, you know, aimed to come in. You used to consider people who were backable to be that way naturally. It was a talent you either had or you didn't. Now you know it can be learned. How did you realize that? I think it's by rewinding the clock and realizing that like the people that they are today aren't the people they were in the past. They had gone through these failures. They had gone through these rejections. And what inspired me to write the book, because if I found that these people were all naturals, there would be nothing to write here, right? They're just, you either have it or you don't. But what I found is that there were a series of adjustments that they made. And what really got me excited is that these adjustments actually weren't that big. And the way that I put that to, to practice, to test, was I was actually out there pitching my own idea and I was getting rejected by every investor that I was pitching. So as I was learning these techniques, I was just putting them, I was, I was bringing them right into the pitch room and realizing that, hey, like I'm getting a little bit of a different response now. So it essentially revealed to you at the time that your idea for Rise your business idea wasn't a bad idea. You were just sharing it in a way that wasn't really getting backers excited. So how did you change your pitch to essentially raising the money that you needed to, launching Rise and serving over a thousand patients, Apple naming it the best new app of the year, and then First Lady Michelle Obama asking you to be on her technology team and, and becoming her official technology partner in the Obama White House. So just share with me a little bit how you adjusted your own pitch for that monumental success. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that I think uh, was really important was the way that I talked about my dad's story, the story that I shared with you before. My thought was that going to pitch sort of analytical Silicon Valley sort of folks, it's all going to be about the numbers. It's all going to be about the data. It was very much focused on the increasing rates of diabetes and hypertension and obesity and how large a market we were really going after, right? Right. And I remember you know, one of the people that I ended up speaking to was, was Tim Ferriss. And yes. what I did is, I, I, again, I spent all this time talking about the market size. And at the very end, I told a story about my dad. And Tim says to me, like, why did you save that story to the very end? Like, why did you make it a footnote? You should tell that story up front, and then you can zoom out, and you can talk about the numbers. You can talk about the millions of people who are out there who are going through their own version of your father's story. 
I mean, he shared with me that when he did that for his book, by the way, with a four hour work week, how when he changed from having to write for a mass market to changing to writing for just one friend, how it made his writing sharper, how before he had been turned down by over 25 publishers, but now when he was writing for one friend, publishers ate it up. And, and the point he was trying to make and what we talk about in the book is, this, is the power of, I think, casting a central character for your idea. One yep. person that you are trying to serve and making sure that you never forget about that one person. You're bringing them to the forefront of your pitch. You know, we, we talk a lot about storytelling in business. I think it's kind of become sort of an in vogue term, but storytelling is not getting up and saying, you know, once upon a time, so and so happened and, and sort of leaving. You have to marry it with substance as well. Right? In, in this case, it's the story that brings you in, but it's the substance that really keeps you there. And so, again, it, you know, when I just made that shift, when I started telling my dad's story first, what it, I could just see that inside the room, people were engaged in a way that they weren't before. And now they wanted to learn more. And I found, by the way, that that was just that was a reoccurring theme. You know, Kirsten Green, who runs a venture capital firm named Forerunner Ventures, she was one of the first investors in the Dollar Shave Club. And I asked her, like, why why did you invest in that business? And she said, you know, the reality is that when I got that pitch deck, I had zero interest in investing. Zero. Uh, In fact, I, I, I said no. But when she met Michael Dubin, just happenstance at a party, the founder of, of, of the club, he walked up to her to you know, share more about the idea. And she, she, she told me, she was like, oh, God, I'm going to hear the same thing that was in the deck. He didn't even bring up any of the numbers. Instead, he's, he walked her through the customer's experience. He said, today, you have these 20-something males who care a lot more about their health than their father ever did. That means what they put in their body also what they put on their body. They're very used to convenience. They're used to buying things online. But when it comes to razor blades, that that all kind of goes out the door. That They walk into a pharmacy. They've got to sort of locate where the razor blades are. Oftentimes, it's behind literally a security case. So you have to push a button, and you have to wait for somebody to come find you in the aisle. By the way, now everybody's sort of staring at you, and behind that locked case are things like condoms and laxatives, (laughs) and and no one knows what you're really there to buy. She's like, the whole thing just doesn't make sense. And you know, for Kirsten, who, by the way, is like a former Wall Street analyst who loves the numbers, was like, that's the thing. It was that story that sort of pulled her in. It got her engaged. So I know it sounds simple, but oftentimes we save the stories to the very end or sometimes we don't tell them at all. Just making that simple shift of telling the story first and then talking about the market made a huge difference. Yeah, it reminds me. My dad also had triple bypass. He's since passed away, but... After his surgery, we also had to dramatically change his diet, dramatically. And he was so unhappy with it. And we ended up finding slews of sweets in the glove compartment of his car because he was hiding it and still eating it. But um, it would have been really helpful to have something like that when he was alive. It's so interesting because, you know, my parents would work late. So they come home and that meant we, we wouldn't eat until probably around 8, 8.30 or so. So it was a late meal, and we go to bed pretty soon after, you know, by 10 o'clock. So it wasn't a lot of time in between. And this was one, like one simple thing that we ended up doing was we started making these low-fat lussies 
you know, like, you know, you ever had a lassi at a restaurant, at an Indian restaurant. It's just, it's, yo- it's basically yogurt and water. And uh, you can mix in some other things, but ours was like a low-fat, sort of low-sugar version. It's like yogurt and water with some, some spices in. And we would always have that in the fridge. So when they came home from work, the first thing that he would do is he'd have a glass of that. And he was eating much less. Yeah, it changes everything. It was just that simple thing. You took Rise to the next level. In 2016, One Medical, a thriving healthcare company, acquired Rise for multiple times its original value. I have to say I'm a member of One Medical, so I, I really love that that app and the brand. Um, you've since gone on to become an entrepreneur in residence at the VC firm Kleiner Perkins. You're also currently a visiting scholar at Harvard University. What made you decide to write your book? What made you decide to to write Backable? Yeah. I think it still all comes back to that story and in 2004 with, with Barack Obama, you know, and just realizing it was just this moment, you know, the way that people are today is in some ways an assumption that we say that they were always been that way. And realizing that that wasn't the case made me re- just made me excited about the idea that like, hey, there's some stories out there that just haven't been told before. And I find them everywhere. I worked in politics. I spent some time working in Hollywood. I spent some time, I've spent time working in tech. And I just have this like, you know, endless curiosity for, okay, you're successful right now. That's great. Fantastic. Let's rewind the clock a little bit. What were you, what's the version one of you like? And then let's talk about how we went from version one to where we are today. You declare that everyone is within striking distance of becoming backable. And we just need to make adjustments to our style without sacrificing making us who we are. And the book details several adjustments or steps. And we talked a little bit. We hinted at that. They course corrected both your life and career. And I, I really do think that they can help a lot of people do the same with theirs. But step one is to convince yourself first. And you go on to state that what moves people isn't charisma. It's conviction. So I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the assumptions that I made when I started doing this research was that the backable people were going to have a certain style of communication. You know, they, they were going to, for the most part, speak with, you know, compelling hand gestures and make great eye contact and just sort of have more of a almost a Toastmasters-esque or Dale Carnegie-esque way about them. Yes. I found that very quickly to not be the case. And in fact, I would say that now the vast majority of the people that I study for the book don't talk that way, and they don't have sort of classic communication styles. One one quick example of that is if you go look up the number one most popular TED Talk of all time, one of my favorite speakers, the late Sir Ken Robinson, who gives this brilliant talk on education. But when you watch it, you know, he has one hand in his pocket, he meanders on and off script, but it's a, it's a brilliant talk. And I found that to be more the case, which is that backable people take the time to convince themselves first, and then they let that conviction shine through with whatever speaking style it is that feels most natural to them. Step two is to cast a central character. And I think we've been talking about that a bit with you casting your dad or me casting my dad. But talk about what it means for others. With anything that we're doing, I think having the ability to be representing someone who's other than you, it's so important. Um, You know, I ended up talking a lot to agents 
you know, people who represented other people, sports agents, talent agents, when I was writing this book, one of the things I noticed is that when they were in the room representing their client, they were a lot more confident than when they were in the room representing themselves. Oh, absolutely. I totally understand that. Yeah. Right. And I think that even though we're not all necessarily agents by profession, we can all, I think, put ourselves in that mindset, which is that no matter what it is we're doing, no matter what type of work it is, that there's always somebody else that we are there for. And sometimes we can forget that. When I was at Groupon early days, our central character was the small mom and pop shop. It was the small business owner. And I still remember, you know, when I, when I went to go interview for that role, and when I, when I spoke to Andrew Mason, who was the founder, CEO of the company, you know, he basically, he took me on a walk around downtown Chicago, and he pointed to these different shops. He knew each of these shop owners by name. He'd tell me their stories. You know, Jim is a baker. He grew up baking with his mom and, and like had that craft from an early age, right? And just like he was just telling me these really compelling stories. That was a central character. And I, I remember thinking to myself, I have to work at this company, right? Like I have to. And you know, when we were in the office, that's all we talked about. When we looked at the walls, it was it was the stories of these small business owners, and it wasn't done in like a cheesy way. Like we really did believe that. But as we started to grow as a company especially as we started to think about going public, the focus shifted from that central character to quarterly earnings, right? To what are things going to look like to shareholders now? And because we lost that focus, I think that, you know, our business really, really suffered. I mean, we lost 80% of our market value within, within months. Some of our best talent ended up leaving. And if you compare that to, I think, some of the other organizations we see out there that really keep like in touch with their central character. I've been going to the, to the Airbnb office to spend time ever since they were in their first ever spot in Potrero Hill. And I remember they had a storyboard up on the wall of what their guest goes through and what their host goes through. And it was literally a frame by frame of the experience. So that designers and engineers and business people could go to that storyboard together and say, hey, you know, this is the part of the experience that we're sort of thinking about. Or here's the part where we think could be reinvented a little bit. And it was just this brilliant, beautiful way of of making sure that every time you walk into the office, you knew who you were there for. Every time you walk into a meeting, you knew who you were there representing. So uh, whomever it is, right, it could be just bringing to, to mind a very clear image of that person who is other than you, that you are there to serve, I think just can do wonders for your the way you can convince others to get behind an idea. Step three is to find an earned secret. Yeah. What does that mean? One of the people that I studied for the book was Brian Grazier. You know, he's this prolific filmmaker. He's won, you know, over 130 Emmys and dozens of Oscars. And, but he also invests in technology companies and he runs large teams. And so when I was in his waiting room, there were people there ready to pitch him on everything, apply for jobs, film ideas, technology companies. And I said to him, you know, Brian, there's a lot of nervous people out in that waiting room right now. And if I could have given them one piece of advice on how to have prepared for this meeting, what would it be? And he thinks for a moment, he says, you know, give me something that I can't easily find on Google. (laughs) And I thought that was so interesting because 
great interviews, great pitches, great presentations, they tend to be based on an insight. They tend to be based on something that you have gone out into the world and you have found through firsthand experience. And by the way, it doesn't necessarily need to be a revolutionary finding. One of the key things about having an earned secret is that you earned it. Like you put yourself out into the field. You did it yourself. You know, shortly after my book launch, somebody contacted me. She's a, she's a mom and she, she, you know, she's returning to the workforce and she was applying for a job at a social media company. But the thing is that it was very much not a product that she used. Her kids used the product, but she didn't. And so she was trying to prepare for the interview. And she was like, how do I do this? And what she did was was really clever, I think. She, She decided to interview every single one of her daughter's friends. What did you like about the experience? What do you not like about the experience? And then she had them send her screenshots, these little moments that they loved or or wish were different. And she takes her phone with her to this interview, which is over Zoom. It's during the pandemic. And now instead instead of just having her background and her bio, she shows this this hiring manager, this gallery of moments, these screenshots that she's collected through her research. And this hiring manager is so impressed that not only does she get the job, but right in the middle of the meeting, he ends up patching in one of their UX designers so that they could see some of this stuff. Right. And I asked her, like, how, how much time did it take you to really prepare for this? Her answer to me was less than two hours, less than two yeah. hours to do all of that, all the interviews, packaging it all together. It just wasn't all that much. But the point is that she sort of, in some ways, followed a very simple framework that I think backable people follow, which is like, what would most people do in this situation? What's the kind of research most people would do? And then how do I put myself one step further into the story? One of my favorite anecdotes in your book is when you talk about how when you were working on Rise, you stood outside Weight Watchers meetings. And as people arrived, you asked them if you could show them a quick demo. And that's how you found your first customers. Yeah. I just think that's brilliant. Um, I want to jump to step five, which is to flip outsiders to insiders. And In telling us what that means, I was wondering if you could share my second favorite anecdote in the book, which is the instant cake mix anecdote, please. Of course, of course. Yeah, you know, in the 1940s, Betty Crocker came up with this idea for instant cake mix. And all you had to do was pour water into a mix and then pop it in the oven and voila, you get this really tasty treat. And so they were very confident that this was going to be a huge mega bestseller product. And so they were very confused when they found out that people were not buying these instant cake mixes, and they could not figure out why. And so they hire this psychologist, a guy by the name of Ernest Dykta, to go out into the field and start talking to customers. And what Dykta comes back to the executives at Betty Crocker with is, I think you have made the process of making a cake too easy, too simple. All they had to do is add water, it's right? All they had Nothing to do. else. It's all they had to do yep. is add water. And so it was so easy that when the cake actually came out of the oven, they actually didn't really feel a sense of ownership over that cake. They didn't really feel like they, they had made that cake. So Dacta's recommendation was really simple. Why don't you remove one ingredient and just see what happens, one key ingredient? And so they do. They, they remove the egg. So now as a customer, you have to go out, you have to buy fresh eggs, come back, crack it into the mix, mix it in. And then you pop it into the oven and sales just completely skyrocket. They completely take off so much so that Betty Crocker ends up building their entire advertising and marketing campaign around the idea that you crack in your own egg, right? You're still part of the process. 
And, you know, researchers have unpacked, I think, this idea over and over again. There's a group out of Harvard that called this the IKEA effect, which, which basically says that we place up to five times the amount of value on something that we help build than something that we simply buy off the shelf. And so, like, you think about, like, what does this have anything to do with creativity or building things? Like, I, I think we've kind of been told that, that innovation is a two-step formula. You come up with a great idea, and then you execute on it really well. But there's a hidden step in between, right? And this hidden step is where you bring in early people. You bring in early employees, early colleagues, where they can actually crack their own egg into the mix, where they can actually feel like it's their creation as well, right? You can, I, I think you can trace literally every successful organization, every successful product, every successful political movement back to this hidden step. We, we know that. It was, never, it was never just one person who came up with an idea and ran it all the way down the flagpole. It was always a group of people who felt almost founder-level ownership over the idea, even though they didn't come up with it themselves. So you've discovered that people tend to fight the hardest for ideas that they feel some sense of ownership for and with. Yeah. And so for somebody that is trying to get their own idea off the ground or pitch themselves in a way that is more successful, how do you foster this? How can people sort of find their, their own egg? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's about, you know, how do you give the person on the other side of the table the person that you're that you're talking to, how do you hand them an egg? How do you how do you actually have them crack their own egg into the mix? And one of the ways that we do that is by falling in love with a problem, but not necessarily always falling in love with a solution. One of the th- one of the mistakes that I used to make going into rooms is that I would walk in with everything figured out, a fully baked plan, right? And then I would ask people to buy in. And this, would, this didn't just happen as an entrepreneur, by the way. This happened when I was working inside companies. And I was, I was having to rally people who didn't think necessarily like me. They were part of different departments. They were in charge of different metrics. And I, and I wanted them to rally around what I had to say. And so I'd walk in with these bulletproof plans. And I would say, hey, are you with me? And oftentimes, the answer was fundamentally no. I, I, we actually were not with you. What I, what I found is that, you know, instead of walking in with a fully baked plan, walking in with some semblance of what something could be, but not necessarily how it has to be, right? In other words, you know, sharing just enough, you can get across like the problem that you're trying to solve, but then open it up to the creative possibilities that come up inside the room. Now, I always have to caveat this because it doesn't mean that because you're walking in and sharing 20%, that you're only 20% prepared. You're actually 100% prepared. Uh, what I have found is that it takes a lot more preparation to have a discussion than to have a presentation. Yes. The second thing I'll throw in just very quickly as part of that is, what are the people who are in the room, what are they excited about? You know, oftentimes we do research on the people we're trying to pitch. We, we, we kind of understand their sort of bio, but I think that we need to like all take a Debbie Millman sort of approach to research. <laughs> like you are very thorough researcher when you interview your guests it's very clear and i think we all need to do that with with the people we're walking to a room with what what do they care about and those are the things that you want to bring into the room hey i know like one of the things you paid attention to you love thinking about is how mobile distribution really works that's actually one of the things i'm trying to figure out right now i have some options but can we can we talk through that together 
right? If you can get to a point where, where now you're, you've shifted from presentation mode into huddle mode, where the two of you are looking at something together, now you're giving that person founder-level passion over your idea. Sunil, you have backed startups, including Impossible Foods, Airbnb, and 23andMe. What did those founders say to you to feel confident in backing them? I, I think they very, very much had put themselves, I think, inside the story. Brian Chesky, again, for example, you know, not coming in with just, hey, wouldn't this be cool? But like having come in with like, I've been sleeping on couches, investigating how this whole thing works. I've been renting out my own apartment. I put out Craigslist ads. Here's how many people actually applied for the vacancy that I had. You know, Leah Buskey, when she was founding TaskRabbit, she was actually cleaning homes herself. You know, when Logan Green was creating Lyft at that time, Zimride, he was the one actually carting passengers around Los Angeles himself. Like he was doing that. And it was just curiosity that was taking people into the story. And then they were, they were getting these insights along the way. That impresses me just going way beyond Google. And I respect it so much, especially for people who have who are smart, who, who I think who could just stay behind a desk and come up with a really great pitch deck, but they decided not to do that. They took much more of a person-on-the-street kind of approach, and uh, that's what I tend to look for. Sunil, I have one last question for you. I want to ask you about a little morning routine that you have with your two daughters. You ask them two questions, and I'm wondering if you can share both what the questions are and their responses. I think it's a, a really wonderful insight into who you are deep down. So I started doing this during the pandemic. Uh, you know, my, my daughters were, were doing homeschool and every morning as I was getting them sort of set up, I would ask them two questions. I'd say, hey, what is the meaning of life? And they'd say, to find your gift. And I'd say, well, what is the purpose of life? And they'd say, to give it away. It's my favorite quote by Picasso. The meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is to give it away. And I continue, Debbie, to come back to not just how we get there, but the three words that tend to hold us back from sharing our gift with the world, which is I'm not ready, right? I'm not ready to do that. And if I have one role as a dad, it's to somehow tap into my mom's energy, let it sort of generationally flow through me in some way so that they can feel that they are ready. I think that it is one of the most heartwarming things that I learned about you and such an inspiring way to think about the world. Sunil Gupta, thank you so much for such an engaging conversation and such a generous conversation. And thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Debbie. Sunil Gupta's new book is titled Backable, The Surprising Truth Behind What Makes People Take a Chance on You. And you can read more about everything that Sunil does at backable.com. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Nolman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. 
The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.